Okay, turn with me to Matthew 10. We have been studying, looking at verses 24 to 42, and uh, seeing reasons why we're not to be afraid and who we're not to be afraid of. We saw the first reason that we're not to be afraid of the world because God's going to vindicate us in the end. So we need to proclaim his truth clearly and boldly without fear. We started, we looked at the second reason is our fear of God. He says there in verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is that? That's God. It's not Satan. Satan will be destroyed there himself. In uh, Revelation 1, John saw a vision of the glorified Christ and it was so overwhelming, John fainted. And Jesus reached down, touched him, said, do not fear. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Satan is not in charge of hell. Jesus Christ is. So don't fear men, fear God. That's the issue. The point here is that we're to fear the one who can determine the destiny of souls, not the ones who can only determine the destiny of bodies. Uh, notice that it says soul and body there. The unsaved will be resurrected and given eternal bodies also, uh, which will dwell in the lake of fire. So they will have actual bodies. And when it says to fear him, that is God, it doesn't mean fear in the sense of terror, but of awe and veneration, of worship and honor. We don't fear man because we so worship God that we want to do what his will is and we want to fear him rather than men. Uh, millions of Christians have paid the price for their faith throughout church history, and we often wonder how can they be so unafraid? Well, I'm not saying they weren't afraid of the pain, but they had a greater fear and adoration of God than they did of men, and they worshiped God so much it removed the fear of men. We ought to fear and worship God so much we don't fear men. Third reason we looked at is our valuation by God, verses 29 to 31. It says, Are not two sparrows sold for an Assyrian, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear, you're more valuable than many sparrows. Jesus assures the twelve and every other person who would ever trust in him that they're dear to their heavenly father. With divine intimacy and intensity, the Lord loves and cherishes those who belong to him. He will not allow any permanent harm to come to them. You see, nothing happens in the simplest, most seemingly insignificant element of life that God doesn't know about and care about. And the smallest animal or insect doesn't perish without God knowing. And Jesus says that God, the God that knows all of those details is your father. He's so infinite. He knows the detail of every creature, every star, every grain of sand, every atom, every molecule in the universe. He sustains and holds it all together at every moment. And he's your personal heavenly father who loves you and cares about you. And when he says there, he, the, the, he says the hairs of your head are all numbered. The point is that if God is concerned about little birds and he's concerned about numbering the hairs of your head, then verse 31, do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. You don't have anything to fear. Jesus says, God, who takes care of all those, those kind of things, don't you think that you're more valuable than those to him? You know, birds don't have souls. Hair obviously doesn't either. 
but you do, and you're eternal and of much more value. There's not one thing will ever happen to you that is outside of God's sovereign will for you. So the question is, why be afraid? Uh, you don't need to because you'll be vindicated in the end and have an eternal reward if you have an eternal perspective. If you truly worship God, you will transcend the fear of men. And if you understand how highly he values you, you won't be afraid of what they can do to you. Well, so far then we've seen that a true disciple emulates his master and he fears God more than he fears the world. And we saw how he that plays out. Well, we come to where we stopped last time, and that's the next mark of a true disciple, and that is that he confesses Christ. Look at verses 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, what's the Lord saying to us in these two verses? How does it relate to us? What does it mean to confess and be confessed, to deny and be denied? I think this message needs to be preached in every church where Jesus Christ is named. This is a message that calls so-called Christians to self-examination. Uh, it's a message that says, look at yourself and your life and con confrontation with the world. Are, in that, are you confessing or are you denying? Because your eternal destiny depends on that. Now notice that verse 32 begins with what word? Therefore. And so that tells us that what Jesus is about to tell his followers is built, built upon what he said previously. He has told us that true disciples fear God more than they fear the world and that they're far more valuable to him than all the seemingly insignificant things that are a part of his creation, yet which he sustains. So if you know that you have the promise of God to vindicate you, if you know that you have the power of God and he's the one you truly worship and fear, if you know that you have the protection of God because he values you far above the rest of his creation, therefore, you would be willing to confess Jesus Christ before men without fear. That's his point. That's what the therefore is there for. Uh, the terms everyone in verse 32 and whoever in verse 33 are inclusive terms that give us a sober warning to all those who are would-be and professing, all professing believers for careful examination as to whether or not their profession is real and genuine. Uh, a person's willingness to confess Christ before men determines Christ's willingness to claim that person before his father. Uh, loyalty to Jesus may result in persecution in this life, but it results in the loyalty of Jesus on Judgment Day. You say, do you mean, Bruce, that you have to confess uh, Christ before men to be a true Christian? Sure, because in order to be a true Christian, you have to believe that in the end, God will gain the victory and lift up his people. If you believe that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, and you believe God's promise that he will never desert you, nor will he ever forsake you, and you believe that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, then you're going to be willing to confess Christ. That's just basic. If you've got the right doctrine of God, you're going to be willing to confess Jesus as your Lord uh, regardless of the circumstances. What could be more reasonable for a disciple of Christ than to confess Jesus before men, no matter how hostile they might be. 
uh, any shame would be overcome by eternal glory. Now notice the word confess in verse 32. What does it mean? That word means to affirm, to acknowledge, to agree. It's not, it's not simply to recognize a truth, but to identify with it. The idea is a verbal statement of identification, of faith, of confidence, of trust and belief in Jesus as your Lord in the subsequent life that follows that confession. You confess before men. You confess with your mouth and you confess with your life as you live out that confession. God will protect his own. God will care for his own. God is the ultimate judge of the earth. And so we have no excuse for shrinking from our duty because of our fear of men. This goes for times of persecution as well as good times. Whether you're standing in front of an agreeing group and confessing the Lord, or whether you're standing in front of a neutral group, or whether you're standing in front of an utterly hostile group, a true Christian confesses. 1 John 4.15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now notice that verse 32 of our text says everyone who confesses Jesus before men. That literally says in front of men. It's talking about standing up in front of people. That emphasizes the public character of the confession. And you can't reduce that in any way. You can't be genuinely saved unless you're one who does this. If, if someone's not willing to do this, if you think you can be a secret Christian that nobody knows about, you missed it. I remember many years ago, I had the privilege of serving on the national board of the Fellowship of Christian Peace Officers, uh, an organization that reaches out to evangelize law enforcement officers and to encourage and edify those who are already believers. And at the time, I was assigned to the policy development and accreditation division at the sheriff's office, so I often interacted with officers from all over the country on accreditation issues and attended the conferences for the accreditation organization. And on one occasion, I was at a board meeting of the FCPO in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's where the headquarters is. And during the course of the conversation, one of the board members who was a chaplain with Chattanooga PD commented that I needed to get to know the Chattanooga officer who was assigned to handle their accreditation matters. He told me, he's a Christian too, but a secret one. And with what I'm sure was a puzzled look, I asked, what do you mean? How can someone claim to be a Christian and yet keep it a secret? And the chaplain started trying to tell me that he had spoken with the man, and the man had told him he was a Christian, and he agreed with the chaplain about the gospel, and he attended a Baptist church uh, there in town, but he didn't want anybody to know about it within the police department because it wasn't politically advantageous to him. Uh, he was hoping to get a promotion, and if the upper-level commanders of the department found out he was a Christian, they might question whether he had the strength and fortitude to be a good police supervisor. Uh, you see, it is, I don't deny it is common in law enforcement for unbelieving cops to look at Christian cops as weak, mild-mannered people who may not be as tough as they need to be in bad situations because they're trying to be like Jesus. Uh, well, I told my chaplain friend what Jesus said here in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And he said, are you telling me that you don't believe there are secret Christians? I told him that I believed a true believer could deny Christ in the same manner that Peter did when he denied Christ. But that would not be 
the continuing ongoing lifestyle of someone who is a true believer. Uh, the truth will come out if the person is a true believer and if they acknowledge and confess Christ. Well, sometime later, I was at a national conference for the accreditation organization, and I ran into the accreditation guy from Chattanooga PD. And so I struck up a conversation with him about how the chaplain had told me he was a Christian. And he immediately told me that he attends such and such a Baptist church, that he doesn't proclaim, but he doesn't proclaim his faith to others because of how they might view him within the police department. And he had a nice, you know, inside job working in accreditation. It was considered a stepping stone to promotion. And so he preferred to keep his faith private. And as we spoke, it quickly became very apparent that this man was a Christian in name only. Um, he was like so many people from the culturally religious South. Uh, he attended church because it was a socially acceptable thing to do in that area, but he had no knowledge or interest in discussing anything to do with Jesus Christ outside the confines of a church building. Um, I walked away from our conversation completely unconvinced the man was a genuine believer. In fact, I was convinced just the opposite, that he was not truly saved. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then verse 10 says, For with the heart, a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, leading to salvation. There must be this verification. Now, that is a work of, that is not a work of man. It is a work of God. Some people say that's works righteousness. If you have to confess, if you have to do anything, then you may as well get a pair of scissors and cut that verse out of your Bible, because that's what it says. The Bible says our salvation is all of God, and it also says you must confess with your mouth. Therefore, confessing with your mouth must be a work of God. And so it's going to cost us something to be a Christian. It must be public. It must be genuine. And its genuineness is marked by our willingness to confess, to affirm, to acknowledge that we belong to Christ, no matter how hostile the elements may be around us. Sometimes people say, well, you know, such and so-and-so once professed to believe in Christ, but now their life gives no evidence or fruit then I'm so sorry, but they're not a genuine disciple because that's the mark. Uh, and that means that this is a good spot for all of us to examine our own hearts because don't we all fail in this area? I know I have. We can be silenced by much less than persecution. Uh, simple embarrassment or friendly ridicule has closed many Christian mouths. Uh, it's sometimes easier to stand up to vicious physical injury by a hostile government than to stand up to unbelieving family or friends who would never do us any physical harm. Every believer will have lapses of faithfulness. That's why the promise of 1 John 1, 9 is so dear. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Peter denied the Lord, but he couldn't live with his denial and he went out and wept bitterly. His heart was broken because he had so terribly failed and grieved the Lord. Timothy was a protege of Paul, the finest that he ever discipled, the man who, who followed him as the primary elder at the church of Ephesus. Incredible young man with all kinds of talents and gifts for ministering the word. And yet years after he became the pastor in Ephesus, Paul had to write him in 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8 and say, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed 
of either the witness about our Lord or me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now, why did Paul have to say that to Timothy? Because Timothy had become ashamed of Christ and the gospel message. It ran so counter to the, the Roman culture and brought such terrible persecution. Timothy had become timid. Timothy had a lapse. Peter had a lapse. I've had them. You've had them. But in a true believer, there's a turning around. Timothy and Peter turned around. A true disciple confesses, as it says in Philippians 2.11, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the mark of a genuine Christian, a willingness to speak no matter how hostile the environment might be. All of us need to take inventory. Are you willing to stand up and confess Jesus Christ? If you will, look with at what Jesus promises at the end of verse 32. I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? That means that on the day of judgment, he will say to the Father, this one belongs to me. He will affirm his loyalty to you as you've affirmed your loyalty to him. Loyalty to him. You can tell a true Christian because they're willing to confess Christ. As I said, there will be lapses. There will be times of failure. But the pattern of their life will be a willingness and desire to be more like Christ. And if need be, to be treated even as he was treated. And that kind of a person the Lord will confess before the Father. When we're loyal enough to Jesus Christ to speak his name in the midst of any situation, he will speak our name in the Father's presence. I mentioned when we were studying earlier in the chapter that there was a governor in the province of Bithynia by the name of Pliny. And Trajan was the Roman emperor at the time. And on one occasion, Pliny wrote a letter to Trajan and he was trying to explain to Trajan some of the problems he was having with the Christians in his little province. Some anonymous informers had come to Pliny and told him there were Christians among the populace. And so he decided he would try to sort of stamp them out. And so Pliny did his best to wipe out Christianity. And in this letter to the emperor Trajan, he explained that despite all of his efforts, he had been unsuccessful. He had tried arrest, fines, imprisonment, beatings, torture, various forms of execution in order to try to get them to renounce Christ and to burn incense to Caesar as an act of worship. It was all to no avail. And in trying to excuse himself to the emperor, he said, none of these acts, those who are really Christians, can be compelled to do. In other words, the real true Christians won't recant no matter what. Even the pagan governor Pliny recognized that a person with such an unflinching conviction must be a true believer. You say, but I can't imagine that. I mean, I, I shut up when somebody comes around that's not a Christian in a good environment. You know, what would I ever do in that environment? That's a fair question. I think there's a certain amount of God-given grace for those kind of times. And you remember, you may not have the backbone you need right now. But back in verse 19, what did he promise? He promised to give you what to say in those occasions when you're being persecuted for his namesake. But I think we also need to recognize that we're right back at the narrow gate. There are far fewer genuine Christians than we think. Many will be saying to Jesus on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things in your name? And he will say, I never knew you depart from me. If 
someone is, as a pattern of life, unwilling to speak up for Jesus Christ, to identify with him when it's unpopular, then there's a good chance they aren't truly one of his children, one of his followers. Now let's look at the other side of it. Verse 33. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who's in heaven. Now this could speak of open rejectors, people who deny Christ flagrantly and openly, who have nothing to do with him, who don't identify with him, who despise him, who hate him, who blaspheme his name. Those words definitely apply to them. But I don't think they're the primary issue in verse 33. I think the primary issue in verse 33 is about those who, have made, who make an outward profession of Jesus Christ but turn away when hard testing comes. Verse 33 is talking about someone in the sphere of Christianity, someone in the surroundings of discipleship, someone who follows outwardly, who comes along, but when it comes to the test, he denies the Lord. See, you can deny the Lord by silence. Do you know that? You can deny the Lord by just not saying anything. I know I've certainly been guilty of that. In fact, when I was a young police officer, I often felt guilty for not being more forthright about my love of the Lord to my coworkers. Uh, there were so many times that they would openly blaspheme the Lord's name in conversations, and it grieved me deeply. I, I felt like Lot in uh, 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. It says he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. I mean, let's face it, if those two verses weren't in the Bible, you would never assume that Lot was a righteous man. And so there are many times that I behaved like Lot. I, I just kept my mouth shut when I should have spoken up. But as I grew in the Lord, over time I became convicted of my unwillingness to speak up for Christ, and so I started doing so on occasion. And what happened was that my coworkers began to recognize that I was genuinely committed to Christ and was serious about my faith. And it didn't, I didn't go around giving them unsolicited advice or pompous condemnation uh, for their immoral behavior and telling them what sinners they were for their foul mouths and sexual immoralities. Uh, but if they asked me what I thought, I told them, but not in a condescending manner. And some of them would even apologize to me if they said something foul or blasphemous in my presence. Others continued to scorn and ridicule, but some did not. In fact, many of them would come to me privately with their theological questions that gave me many opportunities to share the gospel. Uh, there were even occasions, I thought it was always interesting, I had occasions when unregenerate officers would defend me when I was accused unjustly of saying something or doing something that a Christian should not say or, or should not do, they would say, no, I know Bruce Mills, he wouldn't do that. Uh, now, why would they do that? Because they recognized that I recognized Jesus, that I represented Jesus Christ, and that my commitment was such that they knew I wouldn't say or do those things. Eventually, they started asking me to perform weddings and funerals for them. <laughs> and during my time in law enforcement, I ended up conducting three weddings and seven funerals for co-workers and their family members. And at every single one of them, I got to share the gospel with the assembled people. Uh, so I'm living proof that Christ can take someone who is a very weak, ineffective witness 
and give them the courage to take a stand even in an environment that may be hostile to the gospel. Uh, it was simply a matter of consistency, both in living out my faith and in sharing it when opportunities came. Another way you can deny Christ is not only by silence, but by your actions. Uh, just live the way everybody else lives and you're denying Christ. Or you can deny Christ by your words. You can talk like they talk uh, so that they don't know the difference between you and them. I've shared before how one night many years ago, when I was the midnight shift patrol sergeant, and I was sitting by a desk where one of my officers, Donnie, was filling out a report. And somehow the discussion came around to what it meant to be a genuine Christian as compared to someone who was Christian in name only. I, had, I shared the gospel with Donnie, and he was asking lots of questions, particularly about the difference between my faith and Roman Catholics. Uh, Donnie was not and still is not to this day a believer, but he hated hypocrisy in those who claimed to be Christians. And as we were talking, another officer came into the room to pick up some paperwork, and I just casually mentioned to Donnie, I said, there's Rick, he, he's a Christian like me. And Donnie just blurted out, don't tell me he's a Christian. I've heard him cursing like a sailor. And Rick turned bright red and almost ran out of the office. And a few minutes later, my conversation with Donnie ended. And I went out in my patrol car and I found Rick. And when I pulled up next to him in my cruiser, uh, his head just fell. And in great sorrow, he says, he's right, I've done that, I've destroyed my testimony. And so we spent time talking about how to rebuild that testimony and how hard it would be to do so. Um, another way you can deny Christ with your words is by continually being vague and noncommittal about what you believe. For example, if someone asks you what it means to be a Christian, you say, well, it means to have faith in God. Or it means to follow Jesus Christ. Now, both of those statements are true, but they leave out critical information. Uh, I dare say the average American who's either some kind of nominal Protestant or Catholic would agree with both of those statements. Uh, neither one is the gospel, and neither one is a satisfactory definition of what a Christian is. Vagueness in answering such a question may keep you from being persecuted or ridiculed, but it's a very subtle way of denying Christ in your words. So I'm saying that what I'm saying is that you can deny Jesus by silence, by action, and by words. And I won't deny that genuine Christians have done all three of those things. Peter is certainly a perfect example of that by a believer. But that kind of denial as an ongoing pattern of life without any repentance or change, will be repaid by denial on an eternal level when the Lord denies that person before the Father in heaven. Why? Because such an ongoing pattern of denial is evidence that such a person isn't a true follower of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 32 the phrase, I will also confess. In verse 33, I will also deny. Both verbs are in the future tense indicating that Jesus is talking about the future final judgment day. So like I said before, I think that what he is referring to, those who on that day will say, Lord, Lord, it's me. I did this in your name. I did that in your name. This other thing in your name. And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. He'll deny that he has any kind of personal relationship with them. Why? Because their life was a denial of him. 
What you say and what you do affirms your confession of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's that important. It was Teddy Roosevelt who once said, there's never yet been a man who had a life of ease whose name is worth remembering. Uh, now, he wasn't talking about living the Christian life, but the principle applies here too. Don't be one of those who are always looking to live a life of ease that avoids persecution, because that may indicate that you're not a true follower of Jesus Christ. Remember, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So affirm your confession of Christ by your words and actions. You don't need to be among those whom Jesus will say he never knew you. Can you imagine what it was like for our Lord who spent almost every day with Judas for three years, knowing that in his heart Judas did not truly believe despite what he claimed? Judas is the classic illustration of this principle. He was going along, pretending to go belong, but when it got tough, he decided to get out and get some money in the process. And in effect, he says, this guy's not the Messiah. I've got to buy my way out of this deal. He didn't just run. He tried to take as much as he could with him. But on that judgment day, oh my, what a fearful, fearful day that'll be. Look with me, if you would, at Matthew 25, starting at verse 34. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 34. This is a picture of the judgment of the sheep and the goats at the end of the tribulation. It's a picture of the judgment of the nations that will take place at that time. King Jesus will come and set the sheep on his right hand and those who love him and, uh, and they are those who love him and know him and the goats are those who don't know him on his left hand. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In other words, you're mine. Come and inherit your kingdom. They're the ones who confessed him. How did they do that? Verses 35 and 36. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So he tells them what they did to confess his name. Verse 30, verses 37 to 39. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you in sick or in prison and come to you? Notice his answer in verse 40. And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. What's this saying? It's saying you confess Christ with your mouth that's the public affirmation of your faith. You confess Christ before men, no matter how hostile they might be. That shows your genuineness. And here you confess Christ by your actions, by so living the, in the world that you manifest to his people his own heart of affection. In other words, you will confess Christ by feeding someone who's hungry and giving someone food when they need it, by quenching the thirst of one who's, and, and those who are hurting, and giving a home to a stranger, Clothes to one naked or visiting the sick and calling on the prisoners. Why? How does all this fit? It fits because it is a manifestation that you are like Christ. That's because that's how he would respond. The all essential hallmark of being a true disciple of Christ and therefore a confessing Christian is to be like Christ, our teacher and master. Do you confess Christ with your mouth? Do you confess Christ before men no matter how hostile 
they may be. And then do you confess Christ in your lifestyle by reaching out to those others as he reached out to them? By loving as he loved, caring as he cared. So look at your life. There's a cost of discipleship, which is open confession that Jesus Christ is your Lord, King, and Master. If you're willing to do it, then he'll confess you before the Father. He says, that one's mine. He's real. She's real. And if by your life and your lip you deny him, then he'll deny you. Now, don't get mad at the messenger. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. The inventory belongs to you. You say, well, I look at my life and I fall short. I see these lapses. Well, then what's your response to those lapses? Are you broken about them? Do you ask his forgiveness? Do you say, that's not what I want to be? And then move along on the right path. That's the attitude of the heart of a believer. But if you don't even know the lapses are going on, then you're in real trouble. Well, so far we've seen that a true disciple emulates his master and he fears God more than men and he confesses Christ. We come to the fourth point, and that is that a disciple is willing to forsake his family. Look at verses 34 to 37. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. <clears throat> he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now this is a most dramatic statement. He says, in effect, if you want to know how serious it is to follow me, understand I'm not here to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. I cause divisions. Following me will not only divide you from your former religion, from your reputation, and from the world around you, but it will also bring division from those who you hold most dear, your family. I force people to decisions that separate one from the other. Now the Jews had pretty well figured out from the Old Testament that when the Messiah came, he was going to bring peace. Uh, Isaiah 9.6 calls him the Prince of Peace. In Psalm 72, Solomon wrote of the Messiah's worldwide rule of peace and abundance. In Isaiah 2, 3 and 4, listen to it, the prophet prophesies this. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the, house, the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion the law will go forth, and the word from Yahweh of word of Yahweh from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Great passage. Strange that they put it on the UN building, but that's another side issue. So the Jews knew that the Messiah was coming to bring peace. And as Jesus is speaking to the disciples, they'd already begun to experience the peace in their hearts that came from being with Jesus. And they may have been anticipating that this bliss would be just extended to everyone, that as they went out to preach, the whole world would fall at their feet when they heard the news that the Messiah had arrived and that he was the king of peace and it would be a wonderful, peaceful kingdom. But they didn't understand the Old Testament prophets were speaking of the millennial kingdom. 
that the Messiah will establish at his second coming, not at his first coming. Therefore, lest they misunderstand the true nature of his first coming and of their own ministry, Jesus began to prepare them for his own rejection and suffering and also for theirs. So he says, don't under any illusions, don't be under any illusions about me coming to bring peace. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. <coughs> now his gospel message, it is indeed a message of peace because it offers the only way to bring peace between a holy God and sinful man. And it shows the only way for having truly peaceful relationships between people. But because the world system is evil and man's fallen nature is sinful, God's offer of peace continues to be rejected and to be offensive to most of the world's people. And that brings conflict into the most intimate of human relations. So that's why verse 36 says, a man's enemies will be members of his own household. Now, when Jesus told the disciples this, he apparently repeated it using another figure of destruction. We find that over in the parallel passage in Luke 12. Uh, this was such an important issue to emphasize that Jesus repeated it using a different type of destruction, namely that of fire. He says in Luke 12, 49 and verses 51 and 52, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Do you think that I came to grant peace on earth? No, I, I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. So Jesus is saying, don't be under any illusion that as you go out with my gospel message, that the whole world's going to fall at your feet. You're going to go rushing home and tell everyone you've become a Christian, and they should too, and you're going to think that this message is so fantastic that everyone's going to line up to sign on the dotted line, and it's not going to happen. I came to bring fire. I came to bring a sword, not peace. In fact, Martin Luther once said, if our gospel were received in peace, it would not be the true gospel. And if anyone ever saw it divide, he saw it divide. There was Here he was in the Roman Catholic Church, and he proclaimed the truth, and it didn't bring peace. In fact, it created the biggest division in the history of religion. It effectively shattered the complacency of the Roman Catholic Church and gave birth to the Protestant Reformation. So Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but rather a sword, even to this extent. Verse 35, I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He's quoting from Micah 7.6 here. Micah prophesied that when the Messiah came, this would happen. And by the way, do you see that first occurrence of the word against? There, I came to set a man against his father. It's a rare word which is used only here in the New Testament. Uh, it means to cut asunder, to divide in two, to cause a complete division. The other two occurrences of against in the verse are another far more common Greek word, which means against. But in other words, Jesus is saying, I will completely cut off the relationship of a son with his father. I'll cause a complete division between a man and his father. Remember, the father was the individual in the household who was to receive the greatest respect and honor. Normally, a Jewish son would never dream of doing anything to bring permanent division between him and his father. That's why, if you look at your Old Testament, that's why Absalom's rebellion against David was so significant in Jewish history. 
But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says that the division will also extend to include a mother, a daughter from her mother and a daughter-in-law from her mother-in-law. It goes from immediate family members to family by marriage. Jesus says, I'll fracture families in every way possible. That's just the way it's going to be. And then he sums it up in verse 36 by saying, an enemy's, a man's enemies will be the members of his household. In other words, the previously mentioned relationships won't be the only relationships that will be broken. It'll extend to brothers and sisters, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, every family relationship there might be. Now, this is the worst possible fracturing of relationships that can be. I mean, it's certainly bad when you're at odds with your neighbors, your boss, or your coworkers. But when it gets to the family level, and your commitment to Jesus Christ means that you're divided from your family, that's where it really begins to hurt. It goes against your affection and your love for them. It goes against the harmony you want to have with them. But it comes right down to that level. Being a Christian and following Jesus Christ may mean that you have created a division in your own home. That's the mark of a true disciple. A true disciple will not allow their family relationships to be more important than their relationship to Jesus Christ and his authority over their lives. Remember the guy in, back in, in Luke 9, 61, 62, he told Jesus, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to go say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to accept you because you're too attached to your family. You'll never make the break. You'll never pay the price. I've known people just like that. I worked with a man with whom I've shared the gospel on two or three occasions. But he was tied to his family's Greek Orthodox religion, and he wouldn't turn away from it because to do so would mean to lose his family. And there were many people just like him. They're afraid of losing their human relationships if they choose to follow Christ. If, so they choose their family instead of Christ. Jesus says a true disciple must be willing to forsake his family. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. I, I, I thank God I didn't have to forsake my family to be a Christian, but for many people, that's the choice they face. I know a man who came to faith in Christ, but his Roman Catholic wife never did. It caused a great fracture in their marriage for quite a while, but he didn't turn away from his commitment to Christ. Eventually, she came to tolerate his faith, even though she considers him to be a heretic. And she didn't divorce him, but Jesus brought a sword and divided their relationship. <clears throat> We're told about that in 1 Corinthians 7. There it tells us if you have an unbelieving wife and she wants to stay with you, don't divorce her. If you women have an unbelieving husband who wants to stay with you, then let him stay. Because God uses that relationship to sanctify you. Verse 15 says, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace. If the sordid division causes an unbeliever to sever a marriage, the separation is to be accepted for the sake of the believer's peace. Those kind of things have happened and they're going to happen. Someone in a family commits himself or herself to Christ and the whole relationship just falls apart because the conflict between righteousness and unrighteousness. And then it comes down to how real that professed commitment to Jesus Christ truly is. The real disciple will be willing to be forsaken for the cause of Christ if it has to be. You see, what we're talking about is the Lordship of Christ. If 
And, you know, when you became a Christian, it's affirming your commitment to the Lordship of Christ over your life to the point you're willing to forsake anyone and everything for him. It isn't just sticking up your hand, signing a card, walking down an aisle and saying, I love Jesus. Salvation is by faith, not by works. But the manifestation of true faith is a commitment that cannot be swayed by any influence. Yes, you love your spouse and your children and your parents and all those people who are special to you. But your commitment to Christ, if you're a real disciple, is so deep and profound and so far reaching. You will say no to those for whom you have the greatest love and affection for the cause of Christ, if need be. John Bunyan knew all about this, only in a kind of special way. In his case, he chose God over his family, even though they were not rejecting him for his faith. You see, the authorities told John Bunyan to quit preaching. And but he said, I can't quit preaching because God has called me to preach. And they said, if you preach, we'll put you in prison. And so he said, well, if I go to prison, who's going to care for my family? They'll be destitute. How can I close? But how can I close my mouth when God has called me to preach? So he committed his family to the care of God and was obedient to the call of God and, pre and preached. And they put him in prison where he stayed for 12 years. He left behind his wife and four children, one of which was a blind daughter. While there, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which has blessed millions of readers. But listen to what he wrote about being sent to prison. Quote, he says, The parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I would have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer to my heart than all I have besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. But yet, recalling myself, thought I, I must venture all with God, though it go to the quick to leave you. Oh, I saw in this condition I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of my wife and children. Yet, thought I, I must do it. I must do it. I sincerely hope the Lord never puts me in that situation to have to make that same kind of decision. Some of you have had to make a choice in your families. You confessed Jesus Christ and it alienated your family from you. But that's the way we prove the reality of our profession. The one who says, I'm not willing to make that sacrifice, isn't a genuine believer. And then we come to verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What he's saying is, you can't be my disciple and receive salvation I offer if your family means more to you than I do. You must make that break. But there's one more thing which is even more apt to rob God of Christ of his rightful place in the heart of an individual, even more than a family. You know what it is? It's love of your own life. You might, want to, you might be willing to take Christ and lose your family, but would you be willing to take Christ and lose your life? And that brings us to the last point, which we will finish next week and then move on into the next chapter. But before we conclude, are there any comments or questions? I know this has been a sober lesson. I'm well aware of that.
Any comments or questions? Yes, Ingrid. As far as what? You know how you said that you can deny Christ by your silence? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the, the idea there, as I take it, is it's not saying that you don't testify to Christ, but at some point, at some point when there is complete, total rejection uh, of you, and they're obviously not interested you... Finally, you just shut up. And you are silent after that. But that doesn't mean you're silent from the beginning and never say anything. You know? Yes? Because you don't even have to be silent after that because you're protect your, your own life. Yeah, your life. Because <clears throat> that makes people like that. And I still remain and say, hey, say what you will. But I'm still going to live with Jesus Christ, regardless what you may think and regardless what you may yeah. say. So I won't sit there and try to preach at it because I know it's going to happen, but at the same time, I'm not silent because they're going to see it in my life. They'll see it in your life, yeah. Your, your words are silent, but your life is not. I was in court on April 10th, and uh, a brother stood up and uh, said to the judge, uh, well, he doesn't want to hear about Jesus, he doesn't want me to talk about God. But he stood up and said to the judge, well, my sister's a Christian. She'll tell the truth. And it just stopped. The judge said, what does that matter? But so that's, yeah. that's really Yeah, your brother who rejects God mm -hmm. still recognizes that as a believer, you'll tell the truth. Mm -hmm. so. Anything else? Okay. Frank, please close this. My voice is giving up on me. <laughs> <laughs>